Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. Um, we're continuing this series on questions God asks us in Isaiah. So I was a quiet kid, uh, and this is not uh, an overstatement. Um, I'm there on the left. My brother Ben is there in the middle. And my sister is there on the right. I was the classic middle child. I was just very quiet and kind of um, had a life of my own in some ways. Uh, but I, I was so quiet that I remember on several occasions people describing me or, or, you know, catching them talking about me. And they would say, always oh, quiet was a part of it. He's a quiet kid or soft spoken or shy or something like that. And I remember clearly one time when uh, I was with somebody my age and my mom was there and uh, the, the, the girl my age said, yeah, he's, he's really quiet, isn't he? Like, I was right there in the room. It's like, yep. Uh, and I said something like, and this is, uh, in looking back, kind of rude, but I said something like, there's nothing to say. It's like, well, there, there's nothing to say. You know, like, I'll, I'll say something if there was something to say. But uh, the truth was that I was extremely just a nervous kid. And I also had a really bad stutter. And so I was afraid to, to talk. Uh, I was afraid of, of people in some sense. Now, shyness is, is one thing, uh, but there are other reasons that cause even the most talkative among us, even the loudest of us, to just completely go silent, to be unable to find words. You might be in awe of something so beautiful that to speak words about it or to even to begin to describe it in that moment would make, would be unfitting. The, the words would just be unworthy. Um, you, you would feel like you're going to ruin the moment. At other times, we might read something on the news or get a call from a family member and hear news that is just so awful and just so terrible we're in shock and words fail us because of our anger, our denial, our grief, our sadness. When we try to put words to describe things like this, sometimes we, 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 we just can't. We're speechless. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says that there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. This is so true. This is so wise that there are times when we need to be silent. And that there are times to speak um, in order to have friendships, in order to, to, to get to know people and have people know you, you have to communicate, right? You have to talk. You have to overcome uh, shyness. Um, if you're in the presence of beauty and, and how many people, how many artists have been so inspired by the created world that God made, they have to erupt in song and poetry and literature and writing, they have to describe it. They have to give words to it. Maybe a person even causes you to just erupt in, in words and uh, expression of adoration and delight. And certainly atrocities, things that are evil, things that are not the way they should be, cause us to need to speak. In a way, if we didn't speak, it would make things worse. We need to speak out in pain, speak in our anger, and that is sometimes necessary and good. 
There was a man named Isaiah, and he was an Israelite, and he was a member of the king's court. He was a highly educated man. He was a man of uh, surely eloquence and skill with words. If you read the book of Isaiah, it is amazing, astounding, just his skill with words. But in 740 BC, God appeared to him in a vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, who was the king of Judah at the time, Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim are fiery angels. Each of them had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another, another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Awe and wonder at the beauty and thrilling magnificence of the throne room of the Lord, this vision that Isaiah had. This was the creator of the universe that he was encountering. And certainly he was had this mixture of fear and trembling at the holiness of the otherness, certainly the beauty and perfection and power of God himself. Now, we don't know that Isaiah was shy. He probably was not shy. Uh, and in all, by all accounts, he was probably a very upstanding, honorable man. He was very respected. He was also a man who had a lot of power. He lived and was possibly even related to King Isaiah. He lived in his court. He had power. But he was utterly shaken. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was lost, and he says he, he has unclean lips. And this meant that his words were unfitting. They were unworthy in the presence of the Lord. They would fall short in doing any justice to the majesty that was before him. But it also indicates that Isaiah and all of Israel were unclean. In other words, they were unworthy of being in the presence of God. Now, let me just to give a little bit of backstory. You see, Uzziah, for the most part, was a good king, except he became prideful. And he decided that one day he was going to offer incense in the temple. And that sounds like a good thing, but it was not a good thing because this is something that only the priests were allowed to do. According to the law of God, only the priests could offer incense. And so because of his pride, because of he, he thought he, he's the king, he can do what he wants, was Isaiah, when he offered this incense, he broke out into leprosy. If you don't know, leprosy is a disease of the skin. And when you read uh, the laws about uh, leprosy in the Bible, it's not something we, we see very often today, but this is something that is considered unclean. So lepers were not allowed in the presence of the temple. They had to live uh, outside. And they had to be secluded from others. And if you came into contact with somebody who had lepros leprosy, you were considered unclean. 
So this leprosy, this being unclean, represents the sin of all of Israel. The sin of Isaiah, the sin of his king who had just died, and the sin of the people. Now God, in his holiness, is pure in every respect, and he cannot come into contact with anything that is unclean. And there's a reason why. It's because he is holy. And this is a word that we we often think about in terms of just righteousness, right? You know, holier than thou is a phrase that we use. It's somebody who's like stuck up and self-righteous and, you know, probably we don't want to be around them. But the holiness of God is, is pure. It's good. It's because he is creator and we are not. It's because he is God and we are not that we can call him holy. It's not just righteousness. It's not just perfection. It's otherness. And in light of this, and in, in the vision that Isaiah saw, he was left speechless. Because Isaiah was not holy. He was not clean. And he saw that his, his people were not holy and not clean. When I read the news that a 21-year-old white man in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, had killed eight people, he had shot them. And six of them were of Asian descent. I was speechless, like I'm sure many of you were. Nothing can be said in one sentence in light of such an atrocity. And this, for me, hit close to home because I I consider, like, what place do I have to say anything at all in light of this? Um, I myself was raised in a suburb of Atlanta. I myself am a white man. I, too, went to an evangelical church similar in many ways to where this killer went to church. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The sixth commandment that God gave Moses says this. It says you shall not murder. It's one of the shorter ones. It's one of the ones that's easier to remember. And murder breaks the sixth commandment that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. Another time when God's holiness and God's presence shook the very earth and smoke and fire were presence, uh, present there. And the sixth commandment, though, we're not just taught that we're not to take life. But we're commanded to protect honor and uphold the life of any and every human being that God created, God, God created. So in a sense, there's a negative aspect of this command. You shall not do this. But there's a positive aspect of this command as well, where we are to do this. So included in the sixth commandment is a prohibition against racism because it denies the dignity and worth that every human being deserves simply by virtue of the fact that they were created by God in his image and likeness. Also included in the sixth commandment is a prohibition against hatred. Jesus himself teaches us this in in Matthew 5. It says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother 
will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So what we're beginning to see is that this sixth commandment, you shall not murder, it's one, when you read through the Ten Commandments, you can sort of like gloss over, because for many of us, that is not what we have done. We don't consider ourselves killers. We don't consider ourselves murderers, etc., etc. We're beginning to see, as, as Jesus says, that this encompasses so much more. There's a great um, confession of the church called the Westminster Larger Catechism, and it talks about the Sixth Commandment. It says, the Sixth Commandment is you shall not murder. What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? It says, the duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all manner of careful efforts and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices, which tend to the unjust taking away of anyone's life. This includes the following. And I think this is really well done. This was uh, a kind of a modern translation of a very old document. It says, it includes the following, the just defense of lives against violence, patiently bearing the hand of God with quietness of mind and cheerfulness of spirit, sober use of food, drink, medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations, charitable, thought, charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries, and returning good for evil, and comforting and supporting the distressed, and protecting the, and defending the innocent. Comforting and supporting the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. If the sixth commandment encompasses not only the act of murder, but all of the above, and on top of that also our secret thoughts and the tendencies of our hearts, then who can stand? Who can claim that we are clean? Who is sinless if this is the standard? Woe are we. We are people of unclean lips. Now, please do not hear me say that this in any way flattens sin by making murder identical to getting angry at someone. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what God is saying at all. The point I'm trying to make here is actually it's one that I think contemporary discussion on racism is bringing to light. And it's really, really rich. It's this idea that sin is systemic. Sin is systemic. It affects us in a way that's it's manifold. It's, it affects our educational systems, our political systems, our societal structures. Uh, it shows up in power dynamics and corporations and neighborhoods. And theologians from a long, long time ago have been talking about this idea for a long time. St. Augustine of Hippo in North Africa says that humanity is a mess of sin. Isn't that so well said? We are a mess of sin. John Calvin of the 16th century, uh, a uh, reformer, a Frenchman, he calls this total depravity. And this idea is not that we are as bad, all as bad as we could be, but that every part of the human heart, and humans make up a society, so every part of a human society is affected by and infected by sin to one degree or another. 
So there is no soul that is immune to its effects. And so some, even though some have given in to its desire more than others. I think this is why Ibram Kendi's teaching on anti-racism uh, is, is so helpful. Uh, he says in an interview, the term not racist not only has no meaning, but it also connotes that there is this sort of in-between safe space sideline that a person can be on when there is no neutral where there's no neutrality. We're either all being racist or anti-racist. In other words, you're in deniable in denial about your racial bias and prejudice, or you're actively working against racism in yourself and in society. The Bible understands sin in a similar way. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are either in denial about this, or we are exerting every effort to rid ourselves of sin. And so we should all cry out with Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. I am utterly lost. We are people of unclean lips. But there's good news. There's a way to fight against sin. There is a way to be clean. Let's return to Isaiah real quick. Then one of the seraphim, remember, fiery angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This vision of this burning coal being touched to Isaiah's lips, it's, it's thick with meaning. There's so much uh, meaning here. Uh, fire has a purifying significance. So many of the sacrifices of Israel that they would bring, they were burnt offerings, meaning they were consumed with fire. In the sense, they were consumed by God. Um, the unclean clothing of Israelites uh, was gathered and burned. Uh, ceremonially unclean, not just their dirty laundry. Um, it was gathered and burned. This would eliminate disease, and it it was taking away what was considered unclean, unfit to enter into God's presence. So what was happening to Isaiah is that his lips represented his whole body. His sin was being burned up. His sin was being consumed. He was being purified. His guilt was taken away and it was atoned for. Just like the sacrifices of the temple would atone for sin. In the Old Testament, these sacrifices and burnt offerings, they, they allowed for the temporary and symbolic atonement for sins of the people. But each one of them, every single one of them, pointed to this future reality, this one sacrifice where Jesus would die on a cross for his people. And for each one of us, by faith, we can be made pure. Our sin can be made atoned for. We can be made clean. And there's no punishment necessary beyond that. There's no penance necessary. There's no purgatory necessary. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's more. There's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. His personal guilt had been removed. His lips were made clean for sanctified speech. Now was the time for him to speak. Not his words, but God's words. So he he hears this voice from the Lord. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. So what's going on here is God was seeking a messenger of his word. And he asked, Who's gonna, who am I going to send? Who am I going to send with my word? And Isaiah responds, here I am, I will go. I will be sent. Isaiah is one of those prophets of Israel who preaches a message of judgment against sin. He calls the people of Israel to repentance and faith. He preaches a message of God's promise of atonement, of forgiveness. God's promise to reconcile his people to himself when they repent of their sin and turn to him. And if you, as Josh read that, that last, you know, section of verses, the message that he was given, it's not very happy. Uh, It's not very popular. Isaiah had unpopular truth. I could do a whole sermon just about the, the stump uh, and what that entails and what that means. Um, it's the stump of the root of Jesse. And Jesus is the tree that blossoms forth from it. Um, what does this mean for you and me? We, we can talk about this in terms of Isaiah's call, which the rest of the book of Isaiah, you know, this is only chapter six. They're uh, 60 something chapters. The rest of the book of Isaiah is, is him taking these words from his sanctified speech to the people. But what does it mean for us? For all of us, it's a call to repent of our sin, to turn to Jesus for atonement, for salvation. Jesus longs to make us who are unclean, clean. He longs to atone for our guilt. And Christians are to make every effort to rid their lives of sin. And I would say that sin includes racism. For some of us, we are called to speak. And I think there's sort of a universal call for all Christians that we are to speak when God calls us to speak, that we need to speak truth and love, that we need to be ready with the gospel. And we are sinners, but God is a savior and he sent his son to save you so that you can have eternal life with him. We need to be ready with that story of the gospel on our lips, whenever it's necessary, wherever we are, we are all in the sense called to preach the gospel, Mark 16, and that sense applies to all of us. But there are some of you, some of us, and maybe some of you, hopefully some of you, that are called to receive a specific call from God to be preachers, to be missionaries, to go to the ends of the earth, to be pastors, to be teachers, to make it your life's work to tell others about the reality of sin and then all its ugliness and all its uncleanness and the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus in Mark says to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. We come with a message not of condemnation. We come with a message saying sin is sin, and it is abhorrent to God. We are unclean before him, and Jesus has made a way for us to be atoned. The message of of Christianity, the message of the gospel, is a way for reconciliation, vertically and horizontally. We can be made right with God in our relationship with him, and we can be made right in our relationships with others. This is good news, and wow, like, man, we need it. (laughs) Our world needs it. Who is going to go? Who of you is going to go and share this news? Um, This is a picture up in a mountain, and you're looking down into a valley of uh, the Milyachka River, and this is in Eastern Europe in Sarajevo, Bosnia. Um, God sent a shy kid, me, to Eastern Europe, someone who felt really unworthy to share the gospel. It was only for two years. But I, I can't tell you how many times I heard people say, I've never heard this before. Sorry, I need some water. <laughs> so as God was um, kind of working on my heart to call me overseas to be a missionary for two years, and in some sense I feel like I still am a missionary, um, I remember going to church one day and there was a, there was a missionary, a, a man who you can tell sometimes, you know, you, you hear these speakers or, or encounter Christians who you can tell they just spent a lot of time with God. Uh, they know his holiness. They know his goodness. And I remember afterwards just being overcome and overwhelmed by my own sin and my own unworthiness. And yet I was about to go to Bosnia. I was about to be called to be a missionary. And I remember asking this man, it's like, hey, like, I don't feel ready for this. I don't feel like I'm uh, equipped or um, and the right person to do this job. And I said, it's because I have this sin. I have this overwhelming sense of guilt. And he said something that was so simple and yet so freeing. He said, go to God in prayer, ask for forgiveness, and he will forgive you. But don't go to Bosnia until you've done that. And this is, I think, similar to what, I'm in no way comparing myself to Isaiah, but I think it's similar. Uh, When God calls us to specific tasks, when it's God calling us, we will feel unworthy. And we will need to remember that he has atoned for our sin. He has uh, cleansed us because of his righteousness. So who is going to go? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? May those who hear and those who he's calling say, here I am, send me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just your love for us, that you didn't leave us to wallow in our sin, to be miserable in it, but you sent your son Jesus Uh, to come and preach a message of good news, of atonement, 
that we can be made clean, that we can come into your presence and become holy as you are holy. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.